Right on. Hey, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit. And Lord, we pray like a fillet knife this morning, it would have the ability to just cut off the fleshly life from us. Bring forth the work and the life of your spirit. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, it is our desire to know you more this morning. It is our desire, Jesus, to be conformed into your image. It is our desire, Jesus, in greater and greater ways to follow you and to reflect you uh, to this world and to those in our lives. And God, today as we come to your word, we just ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom, that you would give us a spirit of revelation. God, I pray that for us as a church this morning. Great revelation into these things that Paul speaks of so that you can bring about the life of the spirit that we may know you more this morning. And so God, we uh, commit this time to you. We ask your blessing upon it. Lord, I ask for your help. And uh, we just trust you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, I was thinking about um, this text and just kind of wrestling, wrestling through it a little bit this week. It reminded me so much of the series uh, way back when, when we were in Romans. I don't know when it was that we did Romans. It was probably f- five years ago, four years ago, something like that. And, you know, when you come to the book of Romans and you get to chapter one, it's a, it's a really fascinating chapter that deals with the man in sin and the de-evolution of man. You know, of course, our culture preaches the evolution of man. The scripture reveals the man in sin is actually de-evolving into depravity and into sin. And so Paul discusses that whole thing. What shocked me when I was in Romans and what became one of my favorite chapters in Romans was chapter two. Because after we discussed that whole thing, Paul flipped the coin and he talked not about the sinner lost in sin. He talked about the believer who had slid into hypocrisy and the pharisaical life. And I thought, wow, he nails you no matter where you're at. If you're lost in sin, he nails you. And if you're slipping onto the other side in your faith and to to being a Pharisee, he nails you there. Well, the funny thing is, is that the same thing happens here in the book of 1 Corinthians Uh, From chapter 6 to chapter 7. You recall where we were last week. I'm glad you came back this week. And uh, Paul this morning is going to flip the coin for us. And he's going to look at it from the other side, so to speak. You remember in chapter 6, Paul was dealing with this issue within culture. And that was within the church in the city of Corinth that... um, Mainly last week in that chapter, he was dealing with sexual immorality. And this Greek attitude and attitude of the first century, an attitude that was in uh, Corinth and in the church, that, that sex was like something, like it was just an, a- an appetite that needed to be satisfied physically. Uh, an appetite for physical intimacy that needed to be satisfied. And so in the city of Corinth, much like our culture... And it's true in our culture. Sex was a religion. That's what they were about. And if you had an appetite, you fed your appetite however you wanted. And and Paul made that 
uh, comparison of sex, trying to explain something, he's talked about food being for the stomach. That when you have an appetite, you eat. And the attitude was that, that sex was almost the same. If you had an appetite for physical intimacy, then you went and you had physical intimacy, wherever that led you. But Paul made this, this, this difference that he said, your appetite for sex is not like your appetite for food, where food goes into your body and you take what you need and it's expelled. Um, it, it serves a purpose and it's done. Sex is different because two are made one when there's physical union. You're glued together. The two become one flesh and it's something long-lasting, eternal, two souls knit together. And so Paul was telling us the safe context for physical intimacy, for sexual relations, the only safe context is within marriage. God's designed for that. And so Paul wrapped up chapter six. He said this, you need to remember the cross. You need to remember that you were bought uh, with a price. You are not your own. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God has called you to glorify God in your body, even in your sexual relations. And so, you know, as chapter six kind of wound up, he, he was saying our lives are to exist for the glory of God. Now we come to chapter seven and he's, he's going to do the flip side of the argument because Others were saying, okay, sex is just, one group was saying sex is just an appetite to be filled, fulfilled. Another group in Corinth was saying this, well, we're spiritual people. We don't need that. Sexual relations, maybe that's inappropriate now because that's about the physical world and physical desires being fulfilled. And now that we're following God, we can just set that part of our lives aside and put the brakes on that. And, and so here you've got this, this one group in a sense that was preaching that Christian freedom and liberty gave them license to sin and to do whatever they want sexually. The flip side said, well, if I'm going to serve God with my body and, and then give him glory, then maybe I should view sex as something dirty, something immoral, something evil, something immaterial, something unimportant. And so there was there was confusion regarding this issue. And we live in a, a, a confused culture as it is. I mean, the church should be teaching on this stuff regularly, right? We, we should be a, a place where people can come and become unconfused regarding such matters. But much like the culture today, the church is confused too. And so the church of Corinth actually asked Paul to clarify this issue. They asked him a question about it. So let's jump in here. Verse 1, we're going to read through verse 5. He says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except 
perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The importance of sexual relations within the context of marriage here. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this part of it. And the question was this, is it good not to have relations with the woman? And Paul says, no, do not abstain. If you're married, do not abstain. Paul instructed that couples should share with one another, should give to one another their conjugal rights. Because sexual relations is a right of marriage. It's the two becoming one. When you took your vows, you committed yourself uh, to one another. And Paul says this, that, that sex in marriage helps one another deal with temptation. Interesting. We're going to see this throughout this, that you can actually help your spouse with their battle against sin by having relations with one another. We all know there's temptation to sexual immorality. It's surrounding us. In our culture, it is progressively increasing. You know, the, the lid is coming off and it is just open. Whatever, whatever you want, there's great temptation. With a click of a mouse, you, you can find whatever you like. And you can get involved in whatever you like. And Paul says here that sex within the context of marriage helps deal with temptation. Because Satan likes to tempt people in regards to their self-control. You know, it's interesting that outside of the context of marriage. Paul says this, the expression of self-control is abstain. Do not partake. Within the context of marriage though, Paul says the expression of self-control is to partake, to participate, to be involved with your marriage partner. And it might be easy to conclude that that self-control is expressed by abstaining from sex within marriage. But Paul actually says that to deprive one another is to show a lack of self-control. That fruit of the spirit is actually missing if you're depriving one another. And so a lack of self-control leaves one another, leaves your partner, leaves yourself open to be tempted by Satan in regards to all sorts of issues of sin. And part of... uh, of marriage is the relinquishment of, of rights over your body. The wife's body belongs to the husband, he says, and likewise, the husband's wife belong the husband's body belongs to the wife. One flesh, one body. When, when two people get married together, their bodies are no longer their own. And husbands, you're to give to your wives the intimacy that she needs and that she desires. And wives, you're to give to your husbands the intimacy uh, that he desires. You know, uh, how many of you guys were here a number of years ago, we did uh, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. How many of you guys came to that? It must have been like five years ago, something like that, four years ago. We did did it as an an outreach, and on Wednesday nights, we just showed this marriage series with Mark Gunger, and we laughed, and we had a great time, and 
And uh, I was thinking, man, we got to do that again. That was awesome. Mark uh, is a pastor. He's got an incredible way of blending his humor with great truth and uh, making us laugh at ourselves, but also seeing the truth of, way, of the way that God has designed things. And as I was thinking about this message, I thought, yeah, I'm just going to steal some of Mark's stuff and I'm going to talk about this and that. And then I thought, you know what? Why don't I show you guys a video clip of Mark? And so this morning I want to do that. Mark, Mark doesn't, he's a joker, okay? So you're all right to laugh. And I think that, that Mark teaches a really important principle here about the body not belonging uh, to yourself, but belonging to your spouse and how that works. And what he teaches is really important. And so you guys know me. I never do this, but we're going to stop and we're going to watch an eight-minute clip from Mark, okay? And then we're going to come back. Is that cool? We got it ready? All right. All right. That's Mark Conger. That all right? You come back next week, I hope. Hey, it's, it's good stuff, though. It's important stuff for us to recognize and to see that, that perfect uh, standoff that God has designed. Because sex is a means by which uh, God has designed for husbands and wives to have their physical intimacy met. And so Paul says, don't abstain. Uh, come together. Do not deprive one another. He gives a concession and he says, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, you know, except by agreement for a time of prayer, you know, for a limited time to be devoted for prayer, you could take a break or whatever and then come back together. Because the idea is that there's nothing wrong with and there's everything right about sex within the context of marriage. You think about Satan and his heart to tempt, tempt us. You know, Satan's strategy is to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the context of marriage. And his strategy is to do everything he can uh, to discourage sex within the context of marriage. And it's an equal victory. Whatever you think of it, if he, if he beats you on either side of that argument, it's a victory for Satan and he accomplishes his plan either way. And so, you know, I, I would say this, um, as, as Christians, as husbands and wives, we should not accept, you know, poor sexual relations. You know, problems in the bedroom are, are not easy to solve. They're not quick to overcome, but God, God has given that to you as a gift as a husband and wife. And he wants that to be a blessing in your relationship rather than a burden or, or a curse, but a blessing. And so Paul says, you know, as they ask this question, is it good? He says, no, to, to abstain, to, to think that this is something evil, not of God's design. Uh, the answer is no. The answer is no. In fact, you know, it, it's interesting as he's, he's going to begin to talk about this concept of divorce and separation. The world would say this, you know, um, if your marriage is struggling or if it's ailing or, you know, it's hard, things are tough, you know, we would prescribe that you would separate. But we're going to see here that Paul's going to say the principle of the word is that rather than moving out, rather than trying to say, I'm going to go and discover myself and discover what I want and discover who I am or determine what's wrong with 
uh, me or with my spouse, that you're to give yourself to one another, that you're to physically give yourself to one another. And that physical intimacy in your relationship is like glue, like we talked about last week. One flesh binding the two together. Jump with me to verse six. He says this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one, of one kind and one of another. Uh, Paul here begins to talk about himself. He says, I wish everybody... Uh, was like me. And he says, this isn't a command. It's a, it's a concession. And what Paul is talking about is the gift of celibacy, living a life uh, alone, not married. Um, and Paul lived a life where he was himself free to live free um, to the purposes of God without the need for marriage. It's interesting. When you look at the life of Paul, one of the questions about Paul is this, was the guy married? Was he married? Well, we know he wasn't when he was going about doing his missionary work, but it's believed that Paul was actually a widower or that he was separated, maybe even possibly divorced. And uh, either one of those options is, is possible for him. And when you look at his life, one of the things about Paul that he tells us is that before Christ, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. And one of the requirements of being part of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin was he had to be a married man. It was expected married by the age of 18, actually. And so Paul being on the Sanhedrin, very likely that he was married. We don't know what happened to his wife. Maybe she passed away. Maybe when he had his Damascus Road experience and he turned to faith in Jesus Christ and began to go great guns for the gospel, she said, you know, I want nothing to do with you. And they separated off or whatever happened. But the belief is likely that Paul was married. But at this point in his life, as he was serving God and for the rest of his life, he entered into this um, position of celibacy. Now, God gave him this gift, the gift of celibacy, where he was able to handle that. He could live as a single man for the rest of his life. And he saw that in this, his particular situation, that, that God had given him everything he needed to, to deal with that. And it was convenient for the way that he lived his missionary church planting life. But not everyone has that gift. Paul's going to go on to say here, if you're, if you're burning with passion and you can't handle temptation, uh, the temptation of being single, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so it's interesting. He says celibacy is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Wherever God has placed you. That reminds me of uh, a story of a Catholic priest and a rabbi. I like this story. The two of them met on an airplane. They sat down beside one another. They were traveling in the air for a while. And both of them pulled out their books and began to study. And they're kind of looking at one another. Wondering what it, each one was studying. And. Finally, the Catholic priest leaned over to the rabbi and he says, is it true that you don't eat pork? And the, priest, the, the rabbi said, yeah, yeah, don't eat pork. Like bacon, sausage, none of that. 
No, don't eat any pork. Didn't go to the pork roast, the pig roast at CTK. Don't eat pork. Really? What about bacon? You mean not even bacon? He says, I don't even eat bacon. You mean, like, seriously, never? You've never just gone and tried, it, tried a piece of bacon when someone wasn't looking? I, I, I don't eat bacon, says the rabbi. So the Catholic priest puts his head back down and the converse, things go quiet and they continue studying. And then after a little bit of time, the rabbi leans over to the Catholic priest and he says, is it true you've taken a vow of celibacy? And he says, yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Really, says the rabbi. Like, no sexual relations. None have taken a vow of celibacy. So you mean, you've never been married, you've never been with the woman. He said, no, I've taken a vow of celibacy to serve the Lord. And so the rabbi goes back to his studies and the two of them are reading these books and finally the rabbi leans over to the Catholic priest and he says, I got to tell you, I think I'd rather live life without bacon. <laughs> Paul says singleness is a legitimate option. And marriage is a legitimate option. In fact, both are gifts from God, wherever God has placed you. And Solomon said this. He said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from God. Your wife's a gift to you, men. She's a gift from God and marriage is a gift. And if you're in that place where you're unmarried, uh, where you're single, maybe you're a widow, that's a gift from God. And Paul's actually going to move into an instruction on that. Check it out. Verse 8. He says this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul says singleness is is a legitimate option for life. And he gives some advice to the unmarried. He says this. You know, I would instruct you basically to remain in the state uh, that you were when you found Jesus Christ. It's good. It's good. In fact, this is going to be something that he's going to continue on, a theme that he's going to continue on, to stay in the spot where God has put you. I, I, I called this message, bloom where he's planted you. Bloom where he's planted you. Paul says, if you can't control your, your passions, then that's okay. Marry. It's better, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But, you know, at the same time, you know, often people think this. They think that, that if they have some temptation with lust, um, with sexual sin, often people have this attitude that getting married will be the automatic solution for that, for that issue. And many a Christian has been surprised to discover that their issue of lust or their issue of sexual uh, sin didn't magically just go away because they got married. But God had to still work in that area of their lives. And so uh, Paul here is going to speak to two types of married Christians. He's going to talk to people that are in this situation, believer married to believer. And he's going to talk to people that are in this situation. Believer married to unbeliever. Let's check it out. Verse 10. He says this. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And so the first situation that Paul talks about or context is this. 
marriage between believer and a believer, okay? And the first thing he says is this. They shouldn't separate. There should not be uh, divorce. In fact, what's interesting though is that after saying that under no circumstance should a wife ever leave her husband, Paul's going to go on and he's going to give instructions what should happen when she leaves her husband. Why? Because I think, you know, although leaving is against the heart of God, it's not God's design. It's not his pattern. Paul and God understand the, the frailty of human flesh. You know, Jesus allowed for divorce on the grounds of uh, marital unfaithfulness. But Paul here, as he, as he teaches, emphasis, emphasizes the main teaching that God's design is always that, mar- that a marriage should not dissolve. There are two specific grounds, basically, under which God has recognized a divorce. When there's sexual immorality, which is Matthew chapter 19, and in the case where Paul's about to go, where a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever chooses to leave that relationship, then uh, uh, that's all right. But on any other grounds, uh, God doesn't recognize divorce, actually, even if, even if the state does, even if the government does. And if God does not recognize divorce, then, you know, the individual is not free to remarry. They can only be reconciled, really, to their former spouse. Jesus said that, that one who divorces for invalid reasons and marries another actually commits adultery by doing so. And when Jesus gave that teaching, his disciples came to him and they said, wow, uh, that's hard to hear because that tells us that the marriage covenant, God's design in that covenant is, is, cannot be just broken for any reason. That God places high value on that. And the disciples said, wow, if that's the case, it's actually better for a man not to marry than to have a wife. And what happened was they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. That people should take it very serious when they enter into the covenant of marriage. And so therefore, if a person says, you know, God doesn't want me to be married to this person anymore. Or God has brought someone better into my life. They're wrong. And they're not speaking for God at all. Because God does not recognize divorce on such reasons. You know, sometimes people will say things like, my spouse holds me back from truly serving God. You know, a woman actually came to a pastor one time and said that. Said, I want to serve God. What should I do? And the pastor said, are you married? She said, yes, I am. Do you have children? Yes, we have five. It sounds like God's already given you a place then for ministry, the pastor said. And I'll tell you something. You got a heart for ministry? God gave you one. If you're married and you have children, God has given you a ministry. That is your ministry. Say, wow, my husband, my wife, they're not what I want. I'll tell you what. You're, what you're, as you serve God, the, his plan for you is not that you would change them, but that you would change. You change and you serve God and you watch God work in the context of your marriage. Learn to practice the character of Christ with the one whom you have entered into covenant with before God. 
You know, we, you know, we love to say, oh, if, if I was just in this situation, I could serve God. Look, the only thing that's holding us back from serving God in the spots where we are is ourselves. Is ourselves. So if you want to change someone, change yourself. You know, a Christian couple may in fact split up for reasons that don't justify a biblical divorce. It may be because of a misguided sense of spirituality or someone speaking into their lives. It could be because of a sense of just general unhappiness or conflict or maybe abuse in a, in a marriage or misery or issues of addiction or poverty. And Paul recognizes with, without encouraging that though someone may, may leave in such a circumstance or situation, they cannot consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage had not split up for reasons that justify a biblical divorce. And so, you know, there can be problems. There can be problems in marriage that might justify a separation, but partners, marriage partners, are expected to honor their marriage vows even in their separation. Because as, God is, as far as God is concerned, they're still married. And the marriage covenant has not been broken um, for what God considers to be biblical reasons. Can I tell a story this morning? I, I almost feel bad, but I'm going to take the liberty to tell you guys a quick story this morning. There's a lady in our church who this week, or last week, got engaged after 27 years of living on her own, after her marriage ended, 27 years had gone by, and her husband last week asked her to marry her, and it's Sharon Ward. Amen. And she has prayed over that situ situation, and she has waited on God, and she has watched God work. Can you imagine 27 years? I mean, I'm kind of glad she's not here this morning because I can tell the story, and I can honor her, and she won't be humiliated. I thought, what an amazing story this woman has that though it broke up before God she did not have freedom and she served God and she served God and she served God and God has worked in that man's heart and they are going to get married in June praise the Lord isn't that awesome so you can congratulate Sharon when you hear that and so you know Paul applies these principles to husbands and wives and he he makes this distinction that you know, there can, be, there can be separation. You can separate and you can still honor the marriage covenant like Sharon did. And except for sexual immorality, two Christians don't have a reason for a legitimate divorce. And so, you know, just as, it, you know, it's important to recognize that, that Jesus also, Jesus never commanded a divorce on the base of sexual immorality. He carefully said that he permitted it. He allowed it. That the scripture allowed it and that permission was given because of the hardness of human hearts. And so Paul gives us this instruction as we're going through this text. He, he says, if separation happens, remain unmarried, reconcile, reconcile. It's challenging teaching. You know, last week when we were in chapter six, I was really struck by something as we were going through that. As Paul was discussing sexual immorality and that whole discussion, he's just listing sexual sins and 
what the whole thing looked like. Um, one of the things that surprised me was that the word idolatry was slotted in there in chapter six. I'll jump you back there for a second. Um, Chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that unrighteous, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, there it is, idolatry, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The list goes on. And so in the midst of the conversation on sexuality, he slots in idolatry. One of the greatest reasons that we can become dissatisfied in marriage, uh, believer to believer, is when we place our spouse in a spot that they were never designed to be. And that's in the spot of God in our lives. See, when, when we put our spouse in that spot, that's, that's to put them in the spot that God deserves to have. And when I begin to bestow upon my partner the worship that I should have given God, that's idolatry. And the problem is, is that my spouse, my wife, Lisa, cannot bear the weight of me putting the glory on her that belongs to God. She cannot bear that weight. I will actually begin to crush her if I idolize her. Likewise, the same thing applies if she will do that to me. We are not to worship our spouse. We worship God and we honor our spouse and together we're two broken people that make one whole who are trying to serve Jesus Christ together. My wife is a sinner and I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and she needs Jesus and we need to worship Jesus together. And your wife or your husband was not designed to bear the weight of such glory. You will crush them under that expectation you know, that's why I, I thought it was interesting yesterday, Ben at the men's conference made a reference to this, you know, just that on a wedding day, it's so interesting. You think about a, a husband and a wife standing there and they're about to exchange uh, vows or, you know, there is such great hope, but there is also such a great danger in that spot. Because if you expect your marriage partner to supply and to meet the needs that only God can meet, when they don't meet those false expectations, you will begin to despise them. Look, if you're despising your spouse, you might want to look at your own expectations of your spouse and say, am I worshiping them? Have I put them in the place of God? Maybe I should give them a break and worship God. Ben said yesterday, I love the line. He said, when you idolize, you will demonize. When you idolize, you will demonize. You know, I was reminded of the story of uh, David's son, Amon in the scriptures. David's son, Amon in the scriptures, was in love with his half-sister. Her name was Tamar. Within that culture, it was legal for them to get married. They had the same father, but they had different mothers. They were separated. David had lots of, lots of children. And so Amon was in love with his half-sister, and he wanted to marry her. And so uh, his friend plotted with him a situation so that he could get alone uh, with Tamar and he could get her into bed. And so unbeknownst to her, she's, she comes into this situation and he begins to 
force himself upon her and she resists. She says, don't do this. It's a wicked thing before God. Ask the king. He will give me to you. We can be married. And the scripture says that Ammon would not listen to her and he took her and, and he raped her. And the Bible says that immediately after that happened, that he began to hate her. In fact, he hated her with a hate that was stronger than the love with which he had first loved her. Because he idolized her, he put her in the place of God. Once he had taken advantage of her, he began to demonize her. Because what you idolize, you will demonize. And I would say this about our marriages. Worship God. Worship God, not your spouse. Your spouse is the same as you, another sinner saved by the grace of God. Two broken people making one whole. Paul says this in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of, the, of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, firstly, Paul talked about marriage, believer to believer. Now he begins to talk about believer married to unbeliever. Because we would say this, well, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm serving God, but my spouse isn't. Now what do I do? Now where is God leading? What should I do? What's God's will? Well, Paul says this, again, no divorce, no separation. The Corinthians, you know, asked, are we free to go? Am I free to go? Because I'm married to an unbeliever. Look at God actually says this. Think about this. If, if you're a believer and you have an unbelieving spouse, God has bestowed upon the unbelieving spouse, a special blessing by putting you in their life. What an amazing thought. Actually, when you think about it, you are a gift of the grace of God in their life. Remove you from the context of their life. And where would they be at? God has put you there. And God is at work. And you can trust God. Doesn't mean they're going to be saved. It's not a promise that they're going to be a saved. But it is a promise that God is at work. And I would, I, I would encourage you to trust him in that place. Uh, there is a special blessing that has come upon the unbeliever in that relationship because of you. Because of you. Not only that, yeah, yeah, just they're, imagine this. He says they're holy. They're set apart. They're sanctified. Not meaning that they're saved. But they're actually set apart to God in a special way because they're linked to you. And Paul says the same thing about the children. He says the children as well enjoy a special position before God. Special care from God. 
Those kids, what kind of situation would they be in if you weren't in that relationship? If you weren't there? They enjoy a special care from God. He says, they're holy. You know, until, I would say, until God leads them to the place where they are of age and they can make a decision for themselves, God has put a special protection over them because of you. And so Paul says, if you can, stay right where you are. Bloom in the place God has planted you. Learn to serve in the place where God has planted you. You don't know what God will do. You don't know what God will do in your marriage and with your children. I think about Sharon. What a risk. 27 years. I wonder how she felt after five, after 10, after 15, after 20, after 25 years. You don't know what God will do. Bloom where God has planted you. Paul does say this. In that situation where a believer is married to an unbeliever, if the unbeliever wants to break up the marriage, then he says, well, let it be so. God wants you to have peace in your human relationships. See, God calls us to peace. He calls us to peace. And if one spouse is blatantly mistreating the other, you know, I I wouldn't ever say tough it out. I think God would say, you need to get out for safety. But, but there's no, no easy excuse here. You need to see that. That's what Paul is doing and that's what God does. He does not make it easy to end a marriage. And in this situation, unbeliever and believer, the Christian does not have uh, freedom to depart, but they're to cling uh, to the hope that, that God will bring that unsaved partner uh, to salvation while you serve God in the midst of that. Bloom where you're planted. I'm going to wrap it up pretty quick here. Go through this last part. But the basic principle is this. Live as you were when you were called. Live as you are when you were called. Paul says this in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. To which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And so Paul advises people to stay in the situation that they are. Imagine your spot. Think about your spot in life. You know, God's assigned it for you. Like, man, I don't know how I got here. I'm not happy in this spot. I, I, I don't know how. Look it. Let's forget all those arguments for today and recognize today I'm in the spot that God assigned me. How can I take on the nature of Christ and be Christ in this spot where I am? Paul says in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? He gives us a couple examples. Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You were, a, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there, let him remain with God. Marital status, whatever your spot is, you should look at it as a spot. This is where God wants me to be. How can I serve God right now? God might change that circumstance. God might work in the midst of that circumstance. And you know, I, I think about this because I, I, I know lots of people have stories. You think, well, I'm wondering about my past. I'm packing regret for my past. You know, I would say to you this morning, I don't have the answer for that, but I will tell you this. God's grace is sufficient for your past. Jesus Christ knew what he was getting involved in when he shed his blood for you on the cross. When he saved you, he saved you not only for the sins you had committed up to that point, but he saved you for all the future ones and everything in between and here, there, and everywhere. God's grace is sufficient. So just consider that he has you where he wants you. Isn't that an awesome thing about God? Say, oh, just rest. God has me where he wants me. How can I serve him? And rather than to seek to change your circumstance, learn to serve him in that place where he's put you. Two examples Paul gives. The first one, the example of circumcision. It's the same principle that applies to circumcision. We get this. It's taught all throughout the New Testament. If you were a Jew, circumcised, then be a believing Jew. You don't need to change anything. Were you a, a Gentile, uncircumcised? Then be a believing Gentile. It's, it's not about changing that. It's about serving God the way, where you are. God didn't command, as we've seen in here, celibacy. He didn't command marriage. He didn't command circumcision or uncircumcision. All those things are matters of choice. He says, serve me where I've got you. He gives another example of this principle uh, in regards to slavery. Did you get saved and you were a slave in someone's house? Then live like you're a free man and continue to serve where God has you. Were you free when God saved you? Then consider yourself a servant of Christ, a bond slave of Christ, and serve Christ where he has you. Bloom where you are planted. If you're a slave, don't try to escape. If you're set free, Paul says, go for it. Just be yourself in the place that God has put you, doing all things for the glory of God with contentment in your heart, knowing God's got you where he wants you. And you know, again, the hinge pin for developing this whole attitude, Paul brings us back to that important factor that he's done all the way through, and it's the cross. Say, so, man, how do I do that? You don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm up against. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You're right, I don't. But Christ does. And Paul wants us to know that the cross is, is your point of strength. You were bought with a price, he says. Remember that Christ purchased you right in the spot where he has you. And so, you know, God's going to use you for, for his glory, for his name. As you seek to serve him within your marriage, whether it's to a believer, whether it's to an unbeliever, whether you're single, whatever your, the context of your situation is, as you serve God where he has got you, God will lead you 
and he will work for your good. He will work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You were bought with a price. And it's only with the cross in front of us that we endure every day in different situations that God has put you in. And so Paul, we're going to wrap with this verse, verse 24. He says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Amen? Let's pray. Would you guys stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They're going to lead us in a couple songs and then we'll dismiss. But let's ask God. You know, I, I want to bloom right where I'm planted. I want you to bloom where you're planted. And let's God ask the Lord to do that for us this morning as the worship team comes. Right on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Wow, Corinthians is full of challenges. None of us get to escape. And God, we thank you, first of all, for saving us. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that it was with your blood that you purchased men. You purchased me. You purchased each one here. I pray, God, that we would live in a relationship of submission to you as Lord. My wife is not Lord. You are Lord. May I worship you and honor my wife and love her as Christ loved the church. I pray that that would be the context for each one of us, Lord, that whatever our spot is, that we would bloom where we are planted, God, that we would honor you, that this day we would choose to serve you where we are. I thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient for all of my needs, for every need, for each one of our hurts, for each one of our pains. God, you are sufficient. And so today, God, we even come and we just lay our burdens at your feet. We lay our sin at your feet. We lay our hurts at your feet. We ask God that you would heal. We ask God that you would forgive. We ask God that you would work in our marriages. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring health? Would you knit hearts together? We ask God for those that are married to unbelievers that God, that you'd give them great strength in their context, in their situation. We pray, God, that their spouses would be one to Christ, that their children would serve Jesus, that each one would be faithful. Lord, we pray for those that are single, that you would help them to live lives of holiness before you and self-control. We pray, God, that if celibacy is their call, you would give them great strength. And if marriage is their call, God, that you would help them and give them strength to have the character of Christ as they wait until you bring that special person into their lives. God, we thank you that you give gifts. For each one of us, Lord, you have gifts. And may we see them and the people in our lives as the goodness of God towards us. Thank you, Lord, for the good gifts you've given us. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to serve him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.